a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Hello and welcome to today's episode on the podcast. Today's episode is a really important and controversial conversation, and that's why I think we need to have it. There has been a media frenzy about the use of hormone replacement therapy after breast cancer, and a lot of it to me felt very negative because I still, at the end of the day, didn't really quite understand what's what and what are these experts talking about and how is it possible that this can be such a controversial conversation to be had? Is it possible to take HRT after a hormone-sensitive cancer? This is really one of the questions where expert opinion divide, leaving us patients confused. Once you're given a no to HRT, it can make us feel as if we have no other options. I will speak about HRT after cancer a lot more in future episodes on this podcast, because I know so many of us are in a muddle about it. And I will try and learn from experts and patients what the individual thought processes are. But for today, I'm trying to understand from our guest expert what we know from all the studies that have been done. What is the evidence that we have? And why is it that experts' opinions divide? Even if your cancer wasn't driven by hormone receptors, I think this episode is a real must listen to because it will give you a greater understanding of where we're all at. Our guest today is the incredibly knowledgeable Mr. Vikram Talaulika. He is the Associate Specialist at the Reproductive Medicine Unit and Associate Professor in Women's Health at University College London Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. He has published widely in the area of reproductive medicine and he can explain to us what we know and what we don't know and how we handle this in a day-to-day -day situation. Hello, Vikram, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Dani. Thank you for bringing this topic up on your podcast. Yeah, and thank you for helping shed light on this very important and controversial conversation. Um, we don't want to leave women feeling more confused and more worried. We want to really help us become more empowered as patients and understanding our options. And that was our aim for the discussion today. Absolutely right. What do you think is happening in the moment? We have all these views about the use of HRT after breast cancer. How can it even be possible that we have such opposing opinions? Well, at the moment, you're right, there is a bit of a war going on. And sometimes some extreme views are being expressed in terms of whether a woman should consider hormone replacement after a diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer, or is it the rule that no woman should ever think of HRT after she's had breast cancer? 
And this basically stems from lack of robust evidence in this area, because as we will talk later on in, in, in the, in the uh, podcast today, the, sl- the, the number of trials, the number of studies that exist in relation to replacing hormones following a diagnosis of breast cancer are limited. And some of the studies have been open to criticism. And so therefore, there will be always people uh, who will support HRT after cancer. There will be others who will not. What we will try to do today as part of this uh, podcast is really look into what those studies were. What does it mean for women who are having their treatment of cancer and take it from there? That's wonderful. So to help us understand a little bit, we have a whole host of women listening to this after breast cancer. Many of them are on a long-term anti-endocrine treatment like tamoxifen or aromatose inhibitors. And then obviously there are women like me in surgical menopause after radiation. But when a woman is on tamoxifen or aromatose inhibitors, can you just explain to us what those treatments are for? So if you have had a receptor positive, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, then once you've had your treatment, which is surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, depending on the involvement of lymph nodes, depending on the stage of the tumor, you will be offered an endocrine treatment for five years or 10 years. And that's usually in the form of either tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors, such as letrozole and estrozole and others. The whole principle behind these treatments is you want to block estrogen in the body because if you had a tumor which was responding to estrogen, receptor positive, if you have estrogen coming back in the body or whatever estrogen you produce on your own from fat tissue or from ovaries, then if you block that, you're going to reduce your chance of recurrence. How much reduction? It's usually 25 to 30% less risk of recurrence. So that means about 1,300 women are less likely to develop a recurrence if they are on the medication tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. Now, the tamoxifen acts by blocking estrogen receptor. So although the estrogen may be produced in the body by different tissues, ovaries or fat, it will not be able to act on different tissues, including breast, because the receptor is being blocked by tamoxifen. That's how it works. Aromatase inhibitors such as letrozole are a bit different. They block the enzyme aromatase. So any conversion of the androgens or testosterone in the body, which normally gets converted to estrogen, will be blocked. So you're having very, very low levels of estrogen or almost no estrogen in the body. So again, no effect on estrogen receptors. So if you've got those micrometastases somewhere, some cells somewhere after your treatment, the whole aim is to block the estrogen receptor or block any estrogen reaching those cells so that they don't come back as cancer. And that is the most crucial thing, isn't it? Nobody wants their cancer back, come what may, after the breast cancer treatment. Absolutely. And is it fair to say that these treatments, like tamoxifen, have been a game changer in the treatment of breast cancer over the last decades? Absolutely right. I mean, these are absolutely vital treatments because no one wants their cancer back. And if you can reduce estrogen, you can block the estrogen receptors. And that means you have better survival five, 10, 20 years down the line. Then this is a big breakthrough which has happened in the world of oncology. But of course, we're talking about the flip side, which means blocking estrogen is good from cancer point of view but it does bring in a few late effects, problems, menopausal symptoms, and effects on other tissues. Uh, We'll probably explore that as we go along. 
And so we're really dealing with two things because I work with many women who are in their 20s and 30s on say tamoxifen aromatase inhibitors. And so we're looking at how does it make us feel now? How are we living through this space? And what's happening to our long-term health? But listening to what you say, wouldn't it then be madness to put HRT, like any hormones back into your body? If in the first place, all we're trying to do is eliminate it or reduce it. Yes, so that's, that's the question we're trying to answer and a very difficult one, to be honest with you. Well, we don't want estrogen coming back, but there are some caveats to it. And this is where uh, we look into the evidence. Now, let's look at what these medications do or what the breast cancer treatment does, and then look at the studies which try to address what happens when you give hormones back. So we know that if you've had breast cancer treatment, including chemotherapy, and then, of course, you've had to have either tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors. All these are likely to cause menopause or menopausal symptoms. And those can be mild symptoms if you're lucky, but they can be very severe and persistent symptoms, which may really drive down your quality of life and day-to-day -day functioning. So hot flushes, night sweats, problems with sleep, problems with mood, brain function issues, brain fogging, uh, and then, of course, vaginal dryness, painful sex, bladder issues, all those will be sort of as a syndrome of menopausal symptoms that will come through. Severe symptoms can be so bad that women may sometimes be suicidal because their mood is so, so low, it fluctuates a lot. They are not unable to get a good night's sleep. They are not able to do simple tasks in their day-to-day -day life, uh, which may really mean that their overall functioning goes down quite a bit. And of course, you have then impact on the long-term health. The lack of estrogen will drive down bone density, which is now often being corrected by non-hormonal medications. Uh, you have impact on heart because estrogen maintains blood vessels and heart. So you lose the hormone, the heart disease risk will go up. Many women find that their brain functioning is poorer when there is lack of estrogen. And if it happens very early in life, we know that premature ovarian insufficiency can mean you have a higher risk of cognitive decline early on in life. So for all these reasons, the problem is lack of estrogens. What happens when you try to give estrogen back? Because that would be one solution to counteract the symptoms, the long-term health impact, uh, but has to be balanced against risk of recurrence of cancer. So overall, there have been some randomized trials, three or four of the, the most important trials that have happened, looking at replacing hormones. Carry on. Can you please just explain to me, what is a randomized trial? Are those the golden standard trials? And what other trials are there that you're looking at? Because I'm not quite sure what the difference is. Okay. So for any scientific evidence formulation, the best form of studying uh, uh, whether a given intervention, whether it's a medicine or a procedure, has some effect on the patient in terms of efficacy or safety. And the best method or uh, the design of trial uh, or study is called randomized control trial. It simply means you basically make two groups of women or, or your, your participants. One group receives the intervention or medication, such as HRT in our situation. The other group either receives a different medication or what we call as a placebo or nothing at all. And that's a comparison. What happens to the group that receives HRT? What happens to the group that doesn't receive HRT? And you compare what's their life? How are their symptoms? What's the risk of cancer coming back? What's the risk of a new cancer being found? That methodology is gold standard in medicine. 
But if, of course, you can't always do randomized trials because they can be difficult to set up, difficult to recruit patients. There is lots of funding required, lots of infrastructure needed. So many doctors or scientists will do retrospective studies, which means looking at data which is already existing, looking at thousands and thousands of women who have already gone through treatments and looking back on what their recurrence was, whether they tried to take HRT. These are called observational studies, which means you simply observe from far and see how patients go through treatment, sometimes prospectively or retrospectively. But they're not as gold standard evidence as comparing groups and actually following patients as part of a randomized trial. Okay, so today in 2022, you have looked at randomized control studies and the observational studies. And out of everything that we know, you're now in a model because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't have conflicting <laughs> advice, I suppose. Can you go through them? I don't think we need to go through them one by one, but which of those do you as specialists nowadays base your opinions on and your practice? Okay, so just to quickly summarize observational data, there's been lots of conflicting evidence that comes from observational data, which means looking at women who've been actually part of different clinical studies where HRT was offered after breast cancer diagnosis or treatment, and if you look at that, you often find conflicting results. Some studies have said HRT will increase the recurrence risk. Some studies are not showing the same results. But because they are observational, there are a number of confounding factors, bias, problems with accurately identifying patients whether right for the studies. We will keep them to one side. We'll park them for now. The ones that we focus on will be the randomized trials because that's the gold standard evidence in scientific terms. There, are, there have been very few randomized trials in the area of HRT after breast cancer. The, the big two were something called Stockholm trial and the HABITS trial that happened in Sweden, which started around 1997, and the studies got closed prematurely around 2002-2003. What those studies were, they were looking at HRT given to women who had had early breast cancer, which was treated, and then giving HRT and following them up every six monthly, one yearly for first three years, five years, and then longer up to 10 years. The HABITS trial had about 350 plus women. The Stockholm trial had about 170 to 190 participants in each group where they had two groups of control and, and the intervention. And as they followed up patients, they offered them HRT, whether it was cyclical in one study, continuous in another, and they looked at what was the recurrence for these women who were taking estrogen-containing HRT after they had been treated for breast cancer. After the initial studies were looked at and the results were looked at, it was thought that the group that had received hormone replacement had higher number of recurrence events. So the cancer came back for more individuals in the group that had the HRT as compared to the one that did not. But the numbers were extremely small. They were something like 26 in the intervention group and eight in the control or the non-HRT group. Now, this is you're talking about tiny, tiny numbers as compared to millions and millions of women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer and be treated over the next 10, 20, 30 years. But nevertheless, the study is where we go by. And so when you looked at the numbers, you thought that, yes, HRT causes increase in recurrence. 
But then the other studies failed to show the same. For example, the Stockholm study did not find that the HRT increased the recurrence unlike the habit study. But because the habits in Stockholm were going on together and their data were being pooled and looked at the same time, the, the study organizers decided to prematurely terminate the trial because why keep women on an intervention that will mean that they have a higher risk of recurrence. So the studies were closed prematurely. This attracted a lot of criticism because you could never know what would have been the outcome if these women had been followed long enough for five or 10 years. In fact, the Stockholm trial group continued to have some surveillance on women and studied them up to 10 years and found there was no difference in the risk also found no difference in mortality risk from breast cancer in both Stockholm and HABITS trial. And so you can argue that the conclusions were based on a very tiny number. Some of the hormones that were used as part of HRT, for example, the medroxyprogesterone, a synthetic progestogen, was used in very high doses, 20 milligrams, for example. The estradiol was used in quite a significant dose, two milligrams, while many women now get less. So there were lots of methodological issues, the type of hormone used, the, the amount of uh, the hormone dose which was used, that the studies were prematurely stopped. The numbers were very small in comparison to some of the bigger studies we use for other medical uh, interventions. And for all those reasons, one could criticize that that small amount of data or the conclusion from one or two studies is now being extrapolated to stop millions of women accessing hormone replacement for the fear that the estrogen may bring back the cancer for many of them. So that's where wow. we are. Wow. Doesn't it make you as a real expert in this field when you entered this and when you started to study and really immerse yourself in all this, doesn't it make you feel really uneasy? Are we talking about 20, 30 women and like you say, there are millions of women out there surviving breast cancer, living with the effects of menopause. And we're basing our decision-making process on such a small number. I mean, that makes me feel really uncomfortable. How do experts and specialists feel? Well, many of us feel uneasy. There's no denying that we don't want to give women something that will bring their cancer back. And so there's no doubt that sometimes the oncologists feel very strongly that estrogen shouldn't be given because they are dealing with cancer cases day in and day out. I'm not a specialist oncologist. I'm simply a menopause and a hormone specialist. But in a way, the basis for denying somebody an intervention like HRD, if they need it at the end of the day, the basis is not good at all. Right now, the scientific evidence is limited. It is not great quality. And we need much better, bigger trials, randomized trials to look at whether really a particular type of HRT affects recurrence risk. For example, the modern HRT is different. It uses natural hormones, lower doses, natural progesterone or ditrogesterone, which we know are much more breast safe than the synthetic progestogen. So for all you know, you might do a trial and you might find the results like Stockholm trial where the HRT wasn't the culprit in increasing the recurrence. But those trials haven't happened. So we need them urgently right now to give much better quality evidence and base our advice on, right now it doesn't exist. And what do you do in practice then? When I came to see you, that was before 
I was even put into menopause and we discussed my options of what would happen after my surgery. I just did a recent poll in my Facebook group and 85% of women said they had not enough help in regards to their menopause. 85% of women, they've already gone through cancer and then they've had no help for the next sometimes 10 years of their life. If they're lucky enough to get to see a menopause specialist like I did, which we're now campaigning for specialist care, which is so important. What is the thought and conversation process you have with a patient if she wants to discuss HRT with you? Absolutely good question, Dani. Um, so I think here the onus has to lie, the importance has to be on women's choice. So I think when a woman is faced with these difficult decisions, which are difficult for women and equally difficult for the caregivers or clinical team, I think the, 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 the whole focus has to be around informing the woman what evidence is out there and then helping her to make a choice. So for example, if you put somebody through a premature menopause or a surgical menopause, or the menopause happens as part of the treatment later on in life, then it really depends on what the woman is prioritizing. Some women may be lucky, despite having early premature menopause or, uh, or even menopause later on due to chemotherapy, they may have mild symptoms. They're able to carry on in their day-to-day -day life and their functioning remains intact. They may say, actually, even if the evidence is poor and the likelihood of cancer coming back um, is X, Y, Z, I would not like to take that risk. I'm able to cope and manage my day-to-day -day symptoms using uh, non-hormonal treatments or nothing at all. I will improve my lifestyle. I will carry on. But there will be others who will have a terrible time because of menopause, or it happens so early that we are worried there'll be significant number of years without estrogen impacting the bones and the heart. And in those women, often the, 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 the counseling happens to say, do you think that your symptoms are horrendous? Do you think you're not able to cope with life? Are the symptoms really taking any joy out of your life? Then actually, if you have been treated, you've had enough surveillance, you're now into your recovery phase, you could consider hormones as one of the option if you have found that none of the other treatments we recommend help. And it is for the woman to decide in that situation, I would rather get quality of life protect my heart bones over a long period of time, then go by that small increased risk of recurrence. So I think it's woman's choice and this is what we should be giving women a choice. The critical bit is give accurate information. Don't say that HRT is safe for all. That's not right. HRT has been shown to have small increased risk of recurrence, but the data are questionable. The trials haven't been robust and let the woman decide. Many women still choose HRT because they're just unable to function on their day-to-day -day life. And if you've had enough surveillance, you're out of your treatment, you've completed the requisite bit of your breast cancer treatment, it is one of the options when you've exhausted everything else that doesn't work. So do we know, is there a subgroup of women who are at higher risk or lower risk? Is it more beneficial for me to wait a few years after my initial diagnosis to then think, gosh, I've been trying all these other things like antidepressants and exercise and diet and cognitive behavior therapy and all these other things I really can't manage? Or is it better that we start quite soon on the HRT or do we even not know that? We don't know that. It's very individual. Uh, every uh, patient's cancer is different, response to cancer, treatment regime, staging, everything is different. So everyone is unique. The generally, what we recommend is that if you've had treatment for cancer, wait a couple of years at least. Um, and that's because 
you're still in the phase of recovery from all the onset of surgery, uh, chemotherapy, if required radiotherapy. You still want to wait enough to make sure there is no early recurrence. Uh, you want to make sure that you've gone through the initial side effects and the initial acute effects of the treatments that you've had. Your surgery has healed. And then it's usually a couple of years at which point you start feeling confident that the imaging is good, the reports are coming good, and that likelihood of recurrence will be lower as compared to the initial first two years of your treatment. And you're also then able to choose your endocrine treatment by that time if you had a receptor positive tumor. So at that stage, this is the stage usually when we have the first conversations with patients as to, yes, this is the evidence out there. Ideally, one should avoid HRT, but it will be one of the last options depending on how you look at the evidence, your symptoms, your severity, your long-term health. So when you have conversations about shared decision-making and a woman comes to you and wants to discuss the use of HRT after her cancer, do you and the woman make the decision yourselves or do you include other people of her team into that conversation? Like the surgeons or the oncologist or? Again, very good question. It's always good to work together. So luckily we have a very good press team at the places where I work in the hospital, but I would expect the same elsewhere in the country that it should always be a shared decision making first between the hormone specialist and the woman, and then go together to the oncologist to say, hey, this is the situation. We've tried everything non-hormonal. The symptoms are terrible. The quality of life is going down. We've had a discussion that there is evidence out there, but the quality of the evidence is poor. So it's difficult to decide one way or the other. The woman has made a conscious choice after understanding that she wants to start HRT. And then it's dialogue with the oncologist. How best can we optimize it? What should be the lowest dose of HRT we can decide? What type of hormones may be the most friendly? And can the oncologist then suggest maybe tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, something else that can be changed Say some women will only need vaginal estrogen and sometimes they get switched from aromatase inhibitor to tamoxifen that helps. So things like these are always better done in liaison. It's always good to work with the oncologist. A small caveat is that there may be difference of opinion. The oncologist may say, no, I'm absolutely not going to uh, recommend HRT. And fair enough, sometimes the oncologist will really focus on cancer and even that small evidence out there may prohibit them from advising HRT. Then again, I say to the woman, this is between me and you, and you decide whether you would go against the opinion of oncologist. They've given their case to you. I would take it in this way, X, Y, Z. And then the woman is the final one who makes the choice according to me. Wow. I love what you said at the end, and we're going to leave it at that because it really helps me understand that it is our choice isn't it? It is a very personal and very difficult decision-making process. And I can understand that with the guidance of a specialist like you, it can be made a little bit easier. I'm not saying it's an easy decision to make, but with guidance, it can be made a little bit easier. And I guess the best thing for anyone listening to this, for me to say is try and get on the list to see a menopause specialist on the NHS, however long the wait is, because then you can have a conversation that is about you, your type of cancer, your history, your risks and your benefits. Would you agree with that? Or? I completely agree, Dani. I think it's more than just going and taking HRT. I think it's understanding what's out there and then making a choice for yourself. Many women I know, or in fact, most majority of women I know following breast cancer still don't want to take HRT. They don't take HRT and manage without it. 
but there are a handful of patients and others who will find that HRT transforms their life. They're happy to take that small risk on board, but they cannot function without it. So I think it's very individual, fully agree with that. And I love how you talk about it because this is a very non-judgmental, non-personal conversation we've had. And it's possible to have these conversations, whereas everything I see out there in the media is so loaded with emotions and, and personal stories almost. And so thank you for making it so almost matter of fact and like it's a good decision-making process that we can all embark on should we want to discuss it with someone. My pleasure, Tani. All let's hope is that we get lots of funding, we make some very good randomized trials in future and nail this question once and for forever in the next, hopefully, five or ten years. Fingers crossed. Is this, is this, is this maybe what you've got as part of your career plan? <laughs> hopefully, yes. I mean, a, a few of us like-minded scientists or doctors who work in the menopause area are really trying hard if we can set up a collaborative to look at a big trial. Uh, and invite women to participate to get to the bottom of does it really affect recurrence, the HRT or not? Let's see. Thank you so much for that wonderful interview. Thank you, Vikram. Thank you, Dani. Thank you so much. Well, I have no idea how you're feeling right now and if this conversation has been helpful. I know sometimes it can feel really overwhelming, especially when we are told that there is so little evidence for either argument, really. That doesn't make me feel very good. It doesn't make me feel empowered. And yet we all have a choice, like Vikram said, in really deciding what is right for us. And I think what's crucial for me is that we need to be guided by menopause specialists. And maybe the only key takeaway for you after listening to this conversation was, okay, I need to get myself on the waiting list to see a menopause specialist on the NHS. You can go onto the British Menopause Society website. There is a find a tool, find a specialist. You can put in your postcode and you can also be referred outside the borough. And these clinics are there to support women like us. And so it's really important to think, has anything that Danny and Bikram have been talking about, is anything relevant to me? Do I want to take that back to my team? Or maybe it was enough for you to listen to this and you know exactly where you are stood. And sometimes it's important to take a step back. We don't need to make decisions immediately. We've got lots of times in our lives where we're really actively trying to do something about our symptoms and menopause, about all of our long-term health. And then there are phases and months where we really need to take a step back and we can focus on the essentials. And that is moving lots, eating well, reducing our stress levels, because we know that has a really big impact on not just how we're feeling now, but also our long-term health. I really believe exercise needs to be prescriptive. I think eating well is so wonderful because it just not just makes me feel good. It just also makes me feel that I'm actively supporting myself now and my future Danny as well. And so maybe it's good to step away from all of these difficult conversations and focus on what you can control right now become active every single day. But I do hope the information and the conversation has been helpful today. And if you can share that with all the women out there who are feeling very confused with what is going on at the moment in the world of social media, then share this podcast with them because I think it might just be exactly what they need to feel a little bit reassured about how much, or should I say how little we know. <laughs>